If you've ever traveled by train, particularly off a platform, you've heard the expression, mind the gap, in regards uh, to trains. It usually comes over a loudspeaker. But there's a famous, if not fascinating, story about trains and minding the gap that comes to us from history. Uh, though more so because of who's involved in the story than the event itself. Seems that Robert Todd Lincoln, son of President Lincoln, was on a crowded train platform at one point, and as the story goes, he was pushed against the train. Then the train started to move. <laughs> That's not good. His feet entered the gap, which most certainly would be a dangerous place to be. Fortunately for the younger Lincoln, he was saved by the quick actions of another passenger who reached down and grabbed him. It was the famed actor, Edwin Booth. That's not the last time that those two surnames would make headlines or share the same story. In fact, it would be Edwin's brother who would go on to assassinate Robert's father. But it's a reminder here for us to mind the gap. And if you look at your bulletin this morning, you'll notice that the lectionary text that's to be drawn from Romans is rather short. Verses 1 through 2a and then 25 through 32. And if you're wondering why I walked across the center aisle before Susan went up to read was simply to express my apologies for extending that for her. But this is more than an exercise for us this morning uh, for us to test our attention span or even to follow an argument. But rather there's some important considerations that show up inside the gap that the lectionary organizers left out. So let me invite you to consider three of those things uh, this morning as we, as we reflect on and ponder on this text. Have you ever said the line, I've had it with, you fill in the blank. I've had it, no more. Maybe you said that to your car. I've had it with my car. My car has a check engine light that comes on when the car goes to three quarters full down to one quarter, and it comes off when it's full and when it's down to less than a quarter of a gas. No one's sure why that light comes on. Even the mechanics were not quite sure. I fixed one of the parts that's supposed to fix it. But I've had it with that check engine light. Keeps coming on, but the car keeps going. So I don't know what that's about. Maybe you've said it to a misbehaving child in frustration. You've had it with them. Or a coworker, Or another family member. Maybe you've said it to yourself. I've had it with some aspect of your life, some habit some part of your own story or, or something that you're involved in. It's a very human thing for us to say. It's something that in our own moments of frustration we say. But if you read Romans chapters 9 and 10, we might fully expect God to have had it with historic Israel. That this group who's been unfaithful through the years over and over again, which doesn't seem to measure up, and now here in Romans we find out that within that group there's those who are manufacturing their own righteousness, why not God just wipe them off and say, I'm done, I'm out? And for any observer who's just watching this scene at this point and now sees the incorporation of non-Jewish or Gentile people into this Christian, this faith movement, or what we might call the Messianic family, we might conclude here that God has, in fact, moved on. That God has chosen a new audience to go forward with, that the old audience is out, that they got it wrong. But Paul here will argue something different. And he says so in a resounding way. Our text reads, by no means. Has God moved on? By no means. Has God written off his people? By no means. I like how Eugene Peterson's version reads in the message. 
the question and the answer, when he says, does this mean then that God is so fed up with Israel that he'll have nothing more to do with them? Hardly. Hardly. Another commentator, uh, when asked how to translate this thing, said, no freaking way, <laughs> was their translation. And there was others that went along with that. This disobedient and contrary people, that's how they're described at the end of chapter 10, is not rejected by God. It's important for us to hear that this morning. They are not rejected by God. And we know this is true for a few reasons from our text. The first is Paul the messenger, how he self-describes himself in the second part of verse 1. He's an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. If that guy is in, right, if you describe yourself that way and you're in, then God has most assuredly not rejected Israel. Because that dude's about as Israel as you can get with that biography. The second thing we see here is that there's an ancient promise that's included here by Paul. We see that in the second part of verse 2, where it harkens back to the promise that said quite simply, God has not rejected his people. And that promise goes back to 1 Samuel, actually. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. And it's also echoed in Psalm 94. If you know the story, then you know that the people it was originally addressed to, these people in Samuel's day, they were unfaithful to God. And you don't have to guess that they were unfaithful because they come right out in verse 20 of chapter 12 of 1 Samuel and say, we were unfaithful. So they admit up, up to it, they own up to that. Yet still, God did not reject them and remain faithful and says as much. I have not rejected you. The third thing we see here that serves as kind of evidence or reasons here why Paul can come to this conclusion is the ancient stories that are inhabited here. And I thought this was fascinating as you read through this text. I just read through it and I'm like, okay, well, there's a statement, there's a, there's a line here and stuff. But there's actually more going on in the background here that regards to the stories that the people of Israel would have, would have held. And these would have been like flashing lights if you were, if you were versed in those texts. You'd go, whoa, that's a coincidence. Oh, that makes sense. And they'd go on and on. Curiously, God's faithfulness to the ancient wayward people in Samuel's day here is one of those examples. Where they're seen raising, he raises up for them a king. Remember that story? Right, they're all wayward, they're unfaithful and stuff. They want a king, so he raises up for them a king. But note some of the things that happen here. This sign of God's mercy. The king's from the tribe of Benjamin. The king's name is Saul. I wonder if we knew somebody else named Saul of Tarsus who was raised up by a God from the tribe of Benjamin. We just heard about him. That's interesting. That would pique your curiosity at that moment. Perhaps God's mercy is being shown to God's people even in the raising up of Saul of Tarsus from this tribe of Benjamin, one who now goes out and reminds God's people that they're not rejected. A people who are, inhabit a story, who come from a story, and that story has layers to it. But that's not the only background story here. That's the cool thing about this text. It's not the only one here, even though that makes you wonder. We see in the second part of verse 2, Paul draws on the story of the words of Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 19. There the prophet was on the run, fearing for his safety, wondering if he is alone in his devotion, and despairing for his own life. Right? He had this huge event that happened victory in God. God shows up. Yeah, we took care of those prophets of Baal. Now he's on the run because he's going to get killed. Or at least he thinks he's going to get killed. So things are not going well. But yet God hears and sees all of this 
and offers the prophet the promise of God's own presence, provisions for the journey, and the promise of a remnant that God's people will and have been preserved. Elijah and the remnant were witness to God's people not being rejected. So on the face value of that story, by itself, to hear that you're not rejected, to know that in history God has not rejected his people and God continues to act faithfully. But there's another layer. Another layer here. In the ancient story, Elijah goes from Mount Horeb to the wilderness of Damascus. You go back to that story, and that's what happens. So he goes from Mount Horeb, Mount of God, and he goes to the wilderness of Damascus, where he will announce a new king. That's what happens in the story. It's important to know that, because in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul goes from Arabia, the location of Mount Horeb, where does he go next? To Damascus, himself now proclaiming a new king, Jesus. Well, that's interesting. Makes you kind of wonder, doesn't it? What's going on here? There's double confirmation in these stories. That God's presence is real and active. This is not uh, proof texting or sourcing or trying to, trying to find evidence of God's presence. This is multi-layers of God's presence in and throughout history and throughout these stories to confirm that God is, in fact, present and active and faithful and will not reject his people. It's more than curious. It's confirmation. It's confirmation of God's great love. Then, as well as now. And that says everything about who God is and what God is up to. Charles, Charles Cousar makes this observation here. He says, It is not because Israel has demonstrated or will demonstrate tenacious fidelity that it continues to be God's chosen people, but because God has demonstrated and will demonstrate such fidelity. That's good news for us today. It's good news for those who lay hold of the strong promises of God in Jesus Christ that we too will not be rejected. So then what comes of God's people? What comes of God's people here? In every generation, we know people in general, there's some who believe and others who do not. And when it comes to Israel, a people of God's own choosing, it's no different. Some believe, while others do not. So what comes of this lot who are heirs of God's promise? What comes of those who don't believe, but yet hold within their physical identity, bio, their, their biography, their God's people? What, what comes of them? Well, we're not entirely sure. <laughs> right? We're not entirely sure. In fact, if you read commentators, they don't all agree here. I saw one commentator who said, let me outline the various views here on this. And he had six of them. Six of them. Six different views on how to read this text. And that was just from one person trying to outline what other people were holding. So with that in mind, and knowing that we can't be entirely sure what's going to happen, let's talk about what we can be sure of. Things that we do observe here in the text these are some of the considerations I have. One is this, verse 5, people are chosen by grace. They're chosen by grace. Paul's going to make that point here. To be chosen by grace is in itself an act of divine mercy. That's God taking mercy on the person, which just so happens to be the final word 
not only of God to us, but the final word of our reading this morning. If you go to the Greek, verse 32, the very last word is the word for mercy. This shouldn't be too soon forgotten or set aside. This idea that we are chosen by grace. We, Israel, Gentiles, whoever you name it, chosen by grace. And it stands as a clear rebuke here in Romans of the efforts to replace God's righteousness with our own. Now Paul wants to make clear that the choice has always been by God's mercy and by God's grace. But then we see this thing about hardening of hearts. That's the challenging part. The hardening of hearts in verse 7 and following. Paul, of course, has observed at the end of chapter 9 through the beginning of chapter 10 that Israel had replaced God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ with their own. This historic group of Israelis he's looking at. But in verses 7 through 10, Paul draws on three different texts to talk about this hardening that happens. The first one is a conglomeration, actually, of two texts. And we saw this last week. We saw Paul use this technique where he takes two texts and he slams them together and looks like one quote, but it's actually two, uh, two verses put together. And that's what happens in the first one there. It's Isaiah chapter 29.10 is merged with Deuteronomy 29.4. And then he goes on to quote David. What he's quoting there is Psalm 69. And if you listen carefully to what he's quoting, if you listen just very carefully to it, and you look at it, not even with a microscope, but with a keen eye, you'll realize quickly that he just drew from Deuteronomy, the law, Isaiah, the prophets, and Psalms, the writings, which happen to be the three divisions of what we call the Jewish or Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, classic, traditional way of looking at the law, the prophets, and the writings. He quotes all three of them here to make his point. What he's saying here is the witness of Scripture, through and through, has been about this idea or this sense of hardening that exists. But even more importantly, what he's saying here is even in that, God is somehow involved in that process. That God's not somehow keenly aware over here in the grace area, but when it comes to everybody else, it's kind of like, eh, whatever's going to happen, I'm just going to work over with this group. But God is involved in all of this for the purposes of God's purpose alone. There's something in all of this that's going to bring out something that's good in the end. That salvation will be achieved in the end because of God's working both in the grace of calling and choosing but also in the hardening of those who reject that grace. A word here that we might affix to this, and one that Paul certainly would attach here, is the word mystery. It's a mystery. Now, in the Christian faith, when we talk about mystery, we're not talking about Scooby-Doo and rolling around in a fun-colored van. right? We're not out trying to find some sort of secret information that only some sort of the initiated is going to have this information, that's it. But rather, when we talk about mystery, we talk about things that are, lie outside our comprehension. But one day, understanding will come in those areas, that God will make those things clear. And so we affix words like hope to that. I was listening to an interview of a longtime Pixar employee this last week. What I thought was completely unrelated to the message this morning. And she was talking about how when they were working on projects, particularly those early projects after kid, or after, uh, after some of those early uh, Pixar stuff, before there was, a, there was a giant transition that happened in the late 90s with, those, with the work they were doing. But in that early work, directors might come in and say to them something like, it needs to be this way. 
When we make this film, this needs to happen. It might be something like the hair needs to look like real hair, right? Or the light needs to be on the figure. And, and all these, these folks who are illustrators and artists who are working with computers would be thinking in their minds, we don't know how to do that. Or the computer doesn't do that. The code doesn't do that. And she said here that the director's word was as good as gold. It was good as gold because what they understood is when the director said, this is the way it has to be, even if that technology didn't exist, they knew that when they left that room, they had to go figure it out. They had to find a way. They had to get the code together. They had to get the illustration. They had to find some way to make that happen because it was good as gold. It's going to happen. We just don't know how it's going to happen yet. And I wonder if Christian mystery here and all this part of hardening and stuff is part of that. That the idea of this mystery of God's grace and mercy, we know the theological bedrock. We know the categories that we could say are absolute gold. That God does not reject his people. And we know that God's grace goes out and God chooses us by grace. We know those things. Those are promises that are held out to us. And we can kind of wrap our brains around that and say, chosen, yes, not rejected, yes. But how does it work out for all of humanity? And that's the part where the mystery comes in. Where it's to say, let's lean into grace here at this point. Let's lean into God's love in this moment. This arena of mystery, things that exist in the mind of God but are cloudy at best for us, that's the idea here, I think, that Paul is laying before us. That theological bedrock, that God's faithfulness, those are the things that are as good as gold and form the field in which we are to lead our lives. I like what Matt Skinner says here when he reflects on his text. He says, in the end, God is merciful. We might not understand how everything will work out, but God will see to it. God will see to it. Faith rests on hopes like this. Faith rests on that. Somewhere in all this, we do well to remember what Paul will write in verse 29 here. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable for them and for us. Now, I promised you a third thing. That was only two considerations. I promised you a third consideration. I remember one time there was a, a sermon I heard where they said, and my third point, I don't have a third point. Maybe that was it. I do have a third consideration for us this morning. And actually, this third consideration has three points to it. The three things, what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for, for you and me? Well, the first thing is this, is to recognize that the trajectory of Romans has been one that has a very much a Jewish flair to it. And for us not to forget that. That's a story that, that's written not exclusive from, but one that is inclusive of the, the Jewish story of the people of Israel. And in that story, we know the story of a people that had gone into exile and how the writings, even if you look at the book of like Isaiah and you see the writings of the first 39 chapters of a people headed to exile and then from 40 on to 66, you see what it looks like beyond that exile as they're now returning to the land. But that story is very much not only a formative story going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and the end of Deuteronomy, but it's one for us to hear our own stories in. And to know this, that as people that have received Jesus Christ, as people who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are people that have accept, accepted God's Messiah, and in that acceptance we've been received in and we've returned from exile. So that language is important for us to hear. 
because it's going to mark out the path for these next two. All right? We're a people that are returning from exile. We're an Isaiah 40 and beyond people. And we walk with God with that sense. With that in mind, the second thing for us is not to live in a place of arrogance because of that. We don't live in arrogance. Or if we were to pick up the righteousness language of Romans here, we don't live self-righteous lives. We're not to be arrogant. We're not to be self-righteous. And we see that at the conclusion of our text, that Paul draws their minds, this Gentile reading audience, to that. And says, this is not a place for us somehow to use whatever hardening that's happened in Israel and the rejection that we've seen because of the rejection of the gospel for us now to turn on this nation or this people and to live in a way that condemns them and calls on violence. But unfortunately, we've seen that in our history, have we not? Have we not seen people that look like many of us who've enacted this type of suffering and this type of pain on the people, the historic people of Israel? But we're called not to be that kind of people. Instead, we look at God's activity across all the nations and God's work particularly in the people of Israel and we come with a, a particular sense of humility, but also gratitude for the stewardship of that message, but also for the hope of one day how it's going to be revealed, how God has used all this for God's glory. And the third response here, I think, for us, how do we live in all this, probably comes in a, in a real-world a real type sense. And probably one of the, the great illustrations that I have in my own life, you may not think it's great, I think it's a great illustration, but one of the great illustrations... I remember I was, and I've probably shared this before, uh, we had learned that our, our dog Molly, we had a black lab named Molly. We moved to Connecticut, we took her with us, and she was there with us for the first couple years we were there. And, but we had learned that she had, and this is one of those things that you hear oftentimes with pets, is uh, she'd come to a situation, a health crisis type situation, where the end was now. Uh, her body was filled with tumors, and, and that was going to be the end. And so I was taking Molly out for one last walk, around the block. I started out from my house, and there was a route that we always walked, and we're walking, and people, I lived right next to the church building, and so people from the church would see me walking Molly all the time, or uh, see my wife and I out walking, and, and they would wave and, and as they're driving by on different roads, and so they're honking, they're waving, they're saying hi, and they're real joyous about what's going on, but in my heart, I'm sad, very sad, because I know this last time I'm walking my dog Molly. And then, then that was going to be it. And so I'm walking with great sadness, and I'm thinking, how do you, how do you endure this? And, the, and that, that mixture of the joy with my own sadness was so overwhelming. How do I make it through this? Well, the thing that came to mind were some favorite psalms and some favorite songs. Remember as I began to walk and got to kind of a quiet stretch, I sang some songs, some beloved hymns and praise songs that helped make that, that journey all the more better. I remember reciting a psalm, one of my favorites, Psalm 121, as I walked along with that. And the movement of this, this chapter for Paul, when he said all these things, when he's dealt with the mystery and the hardening and the grace, and the idea that God's people will not be rejected, it moves him to a part that lies just outside of our reading this morning. It moves him to a doxology. It moves him to a song. 
the power of the theological categories that are swirling around in his mind and his heart at this point. God's absolute love for him and his people and for the Gentiles as well. It doesn't move him to a place of condemnation. It doesn't move him to a place of pride and arrogance, but it moves him to a song that wells up. You think of that old song, I sing because I'm happy. And here's Paul singing, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I don't have the answers. I don't even know how this all works out. All I know is it does work out. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? God's gift and graciousness. God's love abounds and moves that that grace goes out and is in huge abundance. Forget the greatest Christmas gift you've ever received. Paul's exploding with joy. Maybe even laughter at this point. Thinking, how can you be filled with sorrow when you know such a great promise lies in the hearts of the human family? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I was standing on a stage to become in my ordination process, and it was the movement where, where you move uh, from one stage to the next. It's the early stage that you're in. You're an inquirer, and then you move to a candidate. When you become a candidate, they now open up the field of questions people can ask you. And I was standing on that stage there in the San Juan Islands, freezing because I underdressed for the occasion. But as I'm standing there, the, one of the first questions that comes up asks me about theology and my understanding of how God works. And I shared with them that theology begins with God. It begins with God. Quite literally, actually, the word theology, theos, Greek, is God. So it starts with God. We start there. How does God reveal God's self to us? And that's where Paul's heart blows up here. And I dare say for each one of us this morning, it's an opportunity for us to respond to God's great love with our own little explosions in our hearts and minds, where the Spirit fills us with joy, with laughter, but also even with an appreciation for mystery and a desire to live humble lives. Lives in service to God and lives in service to one another that we might live a life that brings glory to God forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us this morning. And as we hear in this word that your people are not rejected, what great comfort that comes to us as a new covenant people. People who have laid claim to the promises that have been made to us in Jesus Christ. And so as we hear those words anew today, Lord, we pr I pray, Lord, that you would open up a new confidence in each one of us. A confidence of your love, a confidence of, of being held as the beloved ones. And again, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that hears these words and has not known that confidence, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak that good word into their heart. That they'd hear this good news of God's love, your love, of your grace, and that they might follow in that way. We pray it's in Jesus' name. Amen.